Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Please read with me the verses in bold. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. During uh, the World War II bombings of London, four siblings are transported to a country house where they will be kept safe. And in this house, Lucy, the youngest of the four, finds a wardrobe that transports her to a magical world. You might recognize the book as the Chronicles of Narnia, the witch, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, written by the great C.S. Lewis in 1950. My trip just a couple of weeks ago to Turkey reminded me of this particular book. The book references to Turkish delights, as well as the word for lion, which in the Turkish language is none other than Aslan, the name of the lion. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the book, but if you are not, C.S. Lewis describes in the book the magical land of Narnia, a world of enchantment, a land of mythical beasts and talking animals, a land of rolling hills and dense forests, and a great river that runs through it, the great river of Narnia. The land itself is rich beyond compare, and the book perhaps describes the most utopian concept of all, an other world created and ruled by the courageous and noble Lion, Aslan, found in the back of a wardrobe. The prophetical book of Isaiah reads like the Chronicles of Narnia. 
Or perhaps it's more true that the Chronicles read like the book of Isaiah, for Isaiah came first. The book of Isaiah provides us with the most comprehensive prophetic literature and picture of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament, one who is referred to as the Lion of Judah, given that name in the book of Revelation, another prophetical book. Isaiah in his book includes the full scope of the life of Jesus. Again, we have over the last four weeks in Advent looked at different prophecies of Christ in the book of Isaiah. There's the announcement of his coming. There is the virgin birth found in chapter 7, verse 14. There is the proclamation of the good news. There is the mention of his sacrificial death in Isaiah chapter 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. His claim to return and to gather his own. There are numerous Christological references in the book of Isaiah. The book stands as a, as a testament of hope in the Lord, the one who saves his people from themselves and from an evil one, and an antagonist, just like the witch, Jadis, in the Chronicles of Narnia, who has put Narnia in a hundred-year winter. The common theme in the book of Isaiah is the message of salvation, which is exactly what the name of the prophet means. Isaiah means Yahweh saves, or the salvation of Yahweh. To give you a little bit of context, Isaiah prophesied during a time of uh, when Assyria had, uh, the great nation of Assyria had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and was threatening the southern kingdom of Judah. The first half of the book is a warning of God's judgment that the rebellion would come at a cost and that foreign nations, nations like Assyria or nations like Babylon, would overtake them if they continued in idolatry and trusting in nations rather than in God. The book culminates in chapter 39, where Jerusalem eventually falls and the people of Judah are exiled to Babylon. The book of Isaiah is fascinating. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And it's split up neatly into the first 39 and the next 27. Just like the Old Testament and the New Testament. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New, making it 66 books. And again, when you look at the book of Isaiah, you see that uh, the th first 39 chapters are, are these pronouncements of uh, judgment upon Israel. And in verse 27, or, or chapter 40, the next 27 chapters, there's a, a change of scenery, perhaps. Again, 200 years between chapter 39 and chapter 40, where in chapter 40, God pronounces through the prophet Isaiah that they are now free. God tells the people of Israel that her sin has been dealt with, that a new era is beginning, that they should return home, where God himself will bring his kingdom to Jerusalem and allow all nations to see his glory. Chapter 40 is designed to show us what God says will be fulfilled. There will be a day of future hope. 
I think Pastor Brad mentioned last week that in these prophecies in the Old Testament, there is an immediate fulfillment and a later fulfillment, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, a short-term fulfillment, a long-term fulfillment, a first fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment, a partial fulfillment and a complete fulfillment, dual fulfillment of prophecy. And I think what Isaiah does is give us both. We know that in chapter 40, Isaiah prophesies that their captivity and exile had been completed, that they were free to return to their homes, back to their country, that the 70 years of captivity that had been prophesied has now been fulfilled. But as you read through the book of Isaiah, you get the sense that there's more. There's more to the fulfillment than just returning home. It's not just to return to the way things were or the way things used to be, but better. What we have in the, letter, the latter half of the book of Isaiah is the need for the full effect of the promise, a one-day kind of hope. Isaiah reads like the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in 1963. Or I might say that MLK's speech reads more like the book of Isaiah. For Isaiah came first. King expresses, we cannot walk alone. As we walk, we must make the pledge that we will always march ahead. In his speech, he says, we cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their adulthood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and the Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied. And we will not be satisfied until just, justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Listen to the words of Isaiah. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or perhaps no more an old man who does not fill out his days. Or no more. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. No more shall someone build a house and not be able to live in it. No more shall someone plant a vineyard and not be able to eat of their fruits. 
They shall not build another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There is a coming day yet. There is still a coming day, Isaiah writes. Both MLK and Isaiah speak of a future day, a better day, a more glorious day of a new heavens and a new earth. Written centuries, uh, seven centuries, we think, before Christ uses the poetry of prophecy to paint a word picture of a world radically changed by a new thing that God will do. Originally, it was written to encourage the post-exilic Jews who were returning home. But as I mentioned, there's something more. They were home, but home wasn't heaven, not by a long shot. They needed hope but it would get better. Isaiah 65 uses pictures from daily life on earth to help us imagine this kind of hope, a hope, a dream, an anticipation of a better day, of a new day, a glorious day, a day that's different than what we see, a day that's unlike one we experience, one where there's no pain and sorrow, there's no grief and heartbreak. There's no death and cancer. There's no war and bloodshed. There's none of that. And what Isaiah the prophet does in just a short glimpse of, of what this new day will bring is a day when, when, when children will grow up and live their full years and, and adults will grow to be a hundred or more. A day when the fruits of our labors will be experienced by us. Those things that we build, we get to enjoy. And the words of Isaiah paint this picture from everyday life that there's a day that's coming. That it's not just a return home, but it's better. A lot better. There's a, a hope, a dream, an anticipation of a better day, but it's not like a New Year's resolution type of hope. Isaiah reads like a song we sang last week as we celebrated Christmas together. Joy to the World. Joy to the World, written by Isaac Watts in 1719, or perhaps I might say that Joy to the world sounds a lot more like Isaiah, for Isaiah came first. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And these words, included by Isaac Watts, says, No more... No more, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Listen to the words of Isaiah. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or coming to mind. 
But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. For, for, for no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. In the previous verse, God promises that past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from your eyes. And again, we think, how is this possible? Israel's past troubles had destroyed life as they had known it for hundreds of years. And the results of these troubles were still all around them, completely visible to the eye. And perhaps the same is true as we come to the end of this year. The same is true for us. How can we forget? How can we not see the results of sin and evil all around us? For you see, the thing is, God promises not an escape from this earth, not a home in heaven, but a new heavens and a new earth. The God who created the universe out of nothing will create a new universe, a new heaven, and a new earth in place of the old one ruined by sin and evil. It will be good that people won't remember the former things. Instead, people will simply rejoice forever in what God will create. And my friends, forgetting the former things is good news. Forgetting the former things is good news to sinners. That God, as he says in Psalm 103, he remembers our sin no more. Forgetting the former is amazing news for sinners. Forgetting the former things is good news for those who have been sinned against. If you are the victim of violence, if you are the victim of of, uh, of, uh, of horrors, the Bible tells us that, again, this is, this is great news. This is amazing news. This is good news for those who have been sinned against. The Bible tells forgetting the former things is good news for those who have experienced firsthand the brokenness of this world. When we see death and destruction and inhumanity and hatred of one another played out in large and small scales, this is good news. I know that as we approach the end of the year, it's as a good a time as any to appraise how the year has gone, the year in the rearview mirror, as well as to look forward to the coming new year. Always during this time of the year, I get deeply reflective and ponder what needs to change, what needs to stay the same, what needs to be cut, what needs to be added to, to make the new year a little better than the last and if I'm being totally honest, I feel like there's a lot that needs to change. I might say many feel this way at the end of the year, not just me. And as we turn the clock and start another year, we make all sorts of resolutions to be better, to do better, to live better. New Year's is a popular time to turn over a new leaf, to make small changes, to pursue long-term goals. And it seems like the start of a new year is a unique motivational opportunity to make those changes. It's not a bad thing to make resolutions. I think we should all set goals and embark on ways of moving towards them. But mind you, as I read through Isaiah chapter 65, not once in today's passage, not once in today's Old Testament reading does Isaiah tell the people what to do. 
Instead, he offers a vision. It's less about what to do and more about a God who moves and acts and intercedes on behalf of his, of his people. Mind you, Isaiah 65 is not about resolutions and how to be better. And neither is the book of Isaiah. Or matter of fact, neither is all of the scriptures laid out for us in these 66 books. For these are not wise proverbs or how to be a better you, not a book of do's and don'ts, not a how to be a good person book. It's not a magic eight ball book. It really is, friends, a book about God. A God who moves and acts and loves and intercedes. A God who does what we cannot do. A God who does what we cannot do with our money, with our education, with our willpower, with our weapons, with our legislation, with our education. None of that. No resolution, no amount of resolution, but God. <laughs> Isaiah offers a vision of who God is, the desires and longings and hopes that God has for us. And it's not just one thing, it's a, buff a buffet of beautiful, soaring, and poetic images of who God is and what he does for his people. So three very quick things. One, as I read about the new heavens and the new earth, and as I peruse the verses of uh, 17 through 25, I am led to the conclusion that God is... Good and mighty and loving, wise and sovereign. Verse 17 tells us that he is a God who creates and makes new, makes new things. He replaces the old things and he makes us forget the former things and he creates and makes things new. God is a God who transforms and makes new what was broken by our sin. He doesn't just give us a, a repaired parts, but new parts. He is a God who reverses the curse of sin. All that's been messed up and broken by sin, God reverses the curse. For as the curse is found, he comes to make his blessings flow. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. And what God does, he reverses the curse of sin. If you read through the text, it tells that he is a God who rejoices over us. And I love that. Before, before behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. It says, but be glad and rejoice forever in which I create. For behold, I, be, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. God is good. He is mighty and loving and wise and sovereign. Two. When I read through Isaiah 65, I'm led to the conclusion that God 
always does what he says he will do. He always does what he says he will do. If Isaiah 65 tells us anything, it's that God is a keeper of his promises. He's a promise keeper. He never relents. He never goes back on his word. He does not say one thing and do another. He always does what he says he will do. If the latter half of Isaiah is about the fulfillment of the prophecy, we can be assured of future prophecy. If the if uh, chapter 40 through 66 is about how God fulfills his promises, then we can be sure, we could bank on the promise that God will do what he promises to do by bringing us a new day, a glorious day. Yes, there is an immediate fulfillment, but hallelujah, there's a greater later fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment, and hallelujah, there is a far fulfillment. There's a short-term fulfillment, but hallelujah, there's a long-term fulfillment. Hallelujah, there's a first fulfillment that will be followed by an ultimate fulfillment. There's a partial fulfillment, and hallelujah, there will be one day a complete fulfillment. God always does what he says he will do. Thirdly, the book of Isaiah tells us of a new kingdom where God will dwell and rule over his people. Jesus said to himself that he's going to prepare a place for us that has many rooms. If anything, Isaiah 65 gives us hope. It gives us great hope of a greatest hope that we can imagine. A glimpse of a new Jerusalem. Because again, when we read through the book's and we find ourselves in the last pages of Scripture in Revelation chapter 21. John on the island of Patmos. And by the way, I had a chance to, to pass by in Turkey where they think John was buried. Fascinating, I think. Um, but John on the island of Patmos, he gives us uh, Revelation 21, a glimpse of a new Jerusalem. Let me read to you verse 3 and verse 4. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and, they, and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And then in verse 5, he says, So make all things new. And he, that, and, he, and he sat upon the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him... Um, of the fountain of the water of life. Today's passage at the end of the prophecy promises a, a messianic age at the end of time when earth will be reunited with heaven and truth and justice and mercy and peace will reign in the whole new creations of the heaven and the earth. 
If anything, Isaiah 65 gives us a glimpse of this great hope that we have. And, I, I, and, uh, and the book of Revelation chapter 21 ends in the same way of a new creation of a heaven and an earth where God will come to reign and dwell among his people. On a casual night, on a Thursday, on the night, that, on the night before Christ would be betrayed, uh, and taken to a cross, Jesus inaugurates a new kingdom. And he does it through these symbols, these tangible signs given to us to, to practice He breaks bread and says, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, you're reminded of the, of the kingdom that has already come through Christ. He tells us that when we eat the bread and we, we drink the cup, we're proclaiming this kingdom that is to come and that is already here. On that night, he broke bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take it, eat it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant, shed for the forgiveness of sins. A reminder of this new covenant that we have in Christ. He said, when we drink of the cup, we are reminded of the blood that Christ shed for us on the cross for our sins. And as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you do this as a proclamation of his return to us again. My friends, this table is for those who profess Christ, for those who believe that he came, and those who believe that he will come again. This table is for those who profess Christ, that he is our hope, that all those who place their trust in him have this hope of a new heaven and a new earth. This table is for those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If that's you, I invite you to the table this morning. If that's not you, welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, we would love to have you at the table soon.